Well, according to a survey by skinstore.com, women ages 16 to 75 on average spend about $8 worth of cosmetics and skincare on their faces daily. Now that's $250 per month. And if calculated over the course of a lifetime, the average woman in the United States will spend $200,000 to $300,000 on face products. That, of course, is an average across the country. Some locations have, quote-unquote, cheap faces. Montana women come in the cheapest at $3.50 a day. The most expensive Faces, to my chagrin, are found in West Virginia, New York, and Connecticut at $11 per day. And just so none of you ladies here feel excluded, number one in the states of America, South Carolina women spend the most on foundation. (laughs) Ladies, let me tell you of a better foundation. Men, don't be too smug. And self-satisfied, a report from Allied Market Research estimates that men's personal care products will reach $166 billion this year. A survey found that men prioritize beauty and grooming as much as women and overall spend just slightly less on average. But let me just say, men, as I look out, it's not working. I think the reality is evident enough. All of us feel the need to cover up imperfections, whatever we perceive them to be. You know, wrinkles and lines must be filled in or or greased up to make them disappear. You know, dark bags must be covered. Blemishes and scars must be concealed. Definitely not celebrated. So it may be a little counterintuitive when I suggest to all of us this morning that we must celebrate the scars, but we must, because nothing speaks more of the love that God has for us than the wounds, the marks, the scars that Christ bears on his body even now. So you and I must celebrate the scars. Toward that end, we are returning once again this week to Revelation chapter 5. So if you have your Bibles, I'll ask you to turn in them to Revelation chapter 5. There's also a pew, a, a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. And when you found your place in Revelation 5, I'm going to ask you to stand so that we might hear, read together the word of the living God. This is the vision that God gave the Apostle John. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals. And no one in heaven or on earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy 
to open the scroll or look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. So he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and the sea and all that's in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us now to worship around your word. As we see being done even now in heaven, Lord Christ, the living word, the written word now that you give us as we make our way on to glory, bless it to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Since we've been seeing for the last couple of weeks that seeing Jesus changes everything, And since we know that the more often we look at Jesus, the more our faith and our hope and our joy crescendos, then we're going to keep looking this morning once again in Revelation 5 at this vision that God gave the Apostle John. And here we're going to find reason to continue the celebration of Eastertide, this time in an unexpected place, as you and I celebrate the scars. When we look at this passage, one reality that everyone in heaven, everyone in heaven notices is this, that the lamb was slain. Look in verse 6. I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. In verse 9, the elders sing, Worthy are you, for you were slain. In verse 11, the elders are joined by the living creatures and the myriads and myriads of angels of heaven who sing, worthy is the lamb who was slain. And if I might be graphic, the word slain means to slaughter, to kill by violence. And so this lamb who's very much alive bears those marks of violence, of slaughter, of murder. All of heaven points out what you and I are embarrassed to expose 
on earth. Every parent in this room, you know the horror of the moment when your child points out the flaws, the imperfections of another person. When I was in my very first pastorate, one of our congregants had teeth that were almost rotted out. This congregant was holding Adam. Oops, I mean, one of my nameless children. And Adam said, Mr. Jones, why are your teeth so black and rotten? Now that's a red-faced moment for me and for Kathy, pointing out what is supposed to go unnoticed. But in this vision, the inhabitants of heaven don't just take silent notice of the scars and then avert their eyes. Instead, very much unlike us, they boldly proclaim the scars carried by the lamb. And it isn't as if the lamb then slinks away saying, oh, I wish you hadn't noticed. No, look in verse six. Where's the lamb? He's between the throne and among the elders. Between and among, in the very midst of all of them, is Jesus, the Lamb, with his scars. They are the center of the activity of heaven. The Lamb and all of heaven celebrate the scars. They worship boldly and loudly, again in verse 12. The myriads and thousands say with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. John is the only disciple who was at the cross. He was the only one to see Jesus receive the wounds that became the scars, the scars that he still bears in heaven. John saw the scars during the 40 days that Jesus appeared to the disciples in his post-resurrection appearances to them. It's not for us to know what John thought about those scars. It could have been his assumption that the scars would heal, would fade away. John had watched Jesus heal many lepers, either by his word or by his touch, and he saw disfigured faces and disfigured skin healed, renewed. What does skin look like when it's received the healing touch of Christ? Fresh, radiant, glowing. But God did not do that for Jesus. The scars remain and the scars are celebrated. For the rest of our time together this morning, we're going to talk about the wounds of Christ. We think of the wounds that came on the cross. And those cross wounds are real and, and enough to cause us to love and worship Christ. But how much deeper, how much more profound our love for Christ when we realize those are the culmination of a wounded life? It must be true. When the Apostle John saw Jesus the first time, when John the baptizer pointed him out, 
and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Even in that moment, the Lamb was already wounded. The wounds were not yet visible, but they were there nonetheless. We have only time to consider four of the wounds this morning. Now listen, this is always true. My sermons are always too long, but this morning we could stay here for two hours. When I say I'm limiting myself, it's, it's a difficult thing, but, but I'm going to. Just the four wounds. First, there's the wound of Christ's humiliation. And when we think of Christ's humiliation, we think of that famous passage in Philippians chapter 2 that says, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of man. Answer 27 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says, Christ's humiliation consisted in his being born, and that in a low condition, made under the law, undergoing the miseries of this life, the wrath of God, the cursed death of the cross, in being buried and continuing under the power of death for a time. Listen, it's for you and for me to, to probe and to ponder the, the, the magnitude of the humiliation, the condescension, the wound, in order to know more fully the love of Christ for Jesus. His humiliation required becoming totally other than he was. The essence of God, listen, the essence of God is not like the essence of men. God is infinite. We are finite. In other words, Jesus didn't just become a little less great by a matter of degree, he became totally other than he was in his humiliation. See, we attempt to understand the humiliation of Christ in this way, and I've heard it so many times in our life, and the comparison is made between you and me becoming like an ant. Oh, that explains it. Christ's humiliation would be the same as if you and I became an ant. No, it's not. It wouldn't be. Not at all would it be, because listen, I am a created being. You are a created being. An ant is a created being. I am finite. You are finite. An ant is finite. If we were to become ants, we would only become lesser degrees of what we are. So human beings, according to God's word, we're the crown of God's creation. We, we have his image upon us, and yet we share the fact that ants are created beings, one to a greater, one to a lesser degree, and we are both finite. Did you follow, did you follow that? We only understand the depth of the wound when we consider that Jesus Christ is uncreated. He is infinite. He didn't just become a lesser degree of the same genus as you and I, that's his humiliation. I'm reading a wonderful book entitled The Glory of the Redeemer in His Person and Work. And it was written by Octavius Winslow, who was also known as the Pilgrim's Companion. He was a famous 19th century 
American and British pastor. He was a contemporary of Charles Spurgeon. And this is what he writes. Between two finite things, there's always some relative proportion. Thus, a grain of sand bears some proportion to the Alps. And a drop of water bears some proportion to the ocean. But between the finite and the infinite, there can be no possible proportion whatever. Now, in the person of the Son of God, the two extremes of being, the infinite and the finite, meet in strange and mysterious, but close and eternal union. See, that's what Christ did for you and for me, the wound he received in his humiliation. The infinite takes on the finite, wounded for us. Then we have the second wound, his rejection. John says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. Can you imagine? The creator of the universe and all that's in it, unreceived, unwelcomed by the very ones he created, his own people. Look, it isn't as if Jesus came as a Republican, that every Democrat would dismiss out of hand, without thought, without consideration, and vice versa. It's as if he came as a Republican and every Republican rejected him. His very own, his very own did not accept him, did not approve of him, did not draw near to him, did not associate themselves with him. And if I might, draw your attention to Psalm 22. It's famous. You know it. It begins, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It's this messianic song. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. So listen. Even in his form as a man. He says even then he's not a man, but instead he's a worm. It was low enough that he came to earth as a man in the first place. To lay aside his heavenly glory and have it trampled in the dust on this earth. But as a man among men, he says he has not even the dignity that belongs to a man in the estimation of the world. Christ, the creator, the sustainer of the universe, is ranked as a worm. He's divested of all his dignity, humiliation, rejection, wounds, scars for you and for me. And then we have this third wound, the temptation of Christ. Jesus was led by the Spirit of God into the wilderness. And for 40 days, Jesus, in a sense, imprisons himself in the desert with Satan, who has about him the stench of hell on his being and the stench of hell on his breath as he speaks to Christ himself. He's rabid in his hate for God, for the being of God, for the ways of God, 
the glory of God. He hates it all. What must it have done to Jesus in those moments, especially in his humanity, to be in the presence of such hate and such rage against God? What wounds must it have caused to his soul? Satan was expelled from Christ's heaven. And now Satan believes that Jesus will abandon the love he has for the Father. That Jesus will abandon his allegiance to the authority of the Father in his good and perfect and pleasing plan. That the resplendent, glaring purity of the Son could be corrupted by the enemy. Again, Winslow writes, Never were the assaults of the prince of darkness more fearful. Never were his fiery darts more surely aimed and powerfully winged. And never had so shining a mark presented itself as the object of his attack than now. You see, in the desert, ultimate sin tempts ultimate holiness. Ultimate darkness tempts ultimate light. Ultimate hatred tempts ultimate love. The greatest enemy that human beings could ever have tempts the greatest friend that you and I could ever know. These are the wounds of Christ. And I believe they must have been significant because Luke tells us in his gospel that immediately after the temptation, when Satan had left him for a more opportune time to tempt him once again, the angels came and ministered to him. And since we read nothing of physical wounds during the temptation, they must have been deep soul wounds. And so God sends his angels to bring the psalm, to bring the, the balm and the salve to the soul of Jesus. Humiliation, rejection, temptation. These are the wounds that were borne by Jesus before John, the apostle, had ever laid eyes on him for the very first time. I must skip over the next three years. More wounds and more humiliation can be found there, but we come at last to the end, and the fourth wound of Christ is execution. We come to the drops of blood that Jesus sweat in the garden when in the agony of his soul he cried out to the Father. We come at last to the cross, and Jesus cry, My God, why have you forsaken me? These must have been wounds that cut as deeply as the nails and the thorns, and the sword in his side. Because a storm, a storm, had been gathering since the Garden of Eden, since the first sin, since death entered the goodness of God's creation for the first time. Since that time, enmity, hostility existed between the offspring of the woman and Satan. Something 
was going to happen. A storm has been brewing. The world has been waiting. And finally, the storm broke with all its fury on the person of Jesus. And look, look how exposed Jesus was in that storm. He had no shelter from it. Instead, he was lifted high on the cross where the storm could overwhelm him completely. Psalm 69, save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. I have come into deep waters and the flood sweeps over me. I am weary with my crying out. My throat is parched. My eyes grow dim with waiting for my God. And at last he bowed his head. He said, it is finished. And he gave up his spirit. And so the wounded Christ dies. Why must we celebrate the scars? Why must we celebrate the scars? The answer, so easy. Isaiah 53, he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And by his wounds, we are what? By his wounds, we are healed for your sins, for my sins. He was pierced and crushed and scarred. And his wounds heal us. So, of course, we celebrate the scars. Because the depth of the Father's love can only be known by the depth of the son's humiliation and rejection and temptation and execution. I hesitated to sing Arise this morning. Though it's a Redeemer favorite for lo these many years. And the reason I hesitated was because of the line that says, Five bleeding wounds he bears. Received on Calvary, they pour effectual prayers. They strongly plead for me, forgive him. Oh, forgive, they cry. Now look, the beauty of those words is in that they point to how supremely effective and efficient is the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. It is finished. Is that good news? It's beautiful because it reminds us that the prayers that Jesus offers, even now on our behalf, as he intercedes for us, they too are effective. Is that good news? What I don't like is the possibility that anyone would wrongly misinterpret that word, plead. Or the picture it might evoke to your mind that somehow Jesus is okay with sin, but God is not. Please, please remember this. Jesus is 100% divine. He hates sin as much as the Father hates sin. And that's what makes his condescension and his humiliation and his rejection so supremely difficult for us to understand that he would come and live in the midst of sin and receive the scars of sin. 
Neither is it the case, and I hope you'll forgive how, how base this illustration is, but, but it's not a case of good cop, bad cop, right? Jesus is the, the good cop, the loving one who stands, has to stand between you and me and a raging God. A God who, we believe at times, if Jesus would just get out of the way, would completely consume us. I know that's an extreme thing to say, but I've heard it over and over throughout my years of ministry, and beyond that, I've thought it myself. And I can still think it. If I don't look at the scars and remember that they represent the love of Jesus, and not him only, but the Father. Listen. Hebrews chapter 1 tells us that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. That means what Jesus radiates out to us and in this world. It's a reflection of who the Father is, which tells us it's not a bad cop, angry cop waiting to devour us. It reminds us that the love of God is as intense as the love of Christ. Jonathan Edwards In his famous sermon, The Excellency of God, says, God the Father hath no attribute or perfection that the Son hath not in equal degree and equal glory. The Father loves you as much as the Son loves you. Never forget that. He's not angry that the Son prevents him from getting to you. No. Romans 8, 31 and 32. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I'm done. One last quote from Winslow. Having drained all his wrath and poured it out on the head of your surety, nothing is reserved for you in the heart of God but the deep fountain of tender mercy and loving kindness. And so you and I look at the scars. We celebrate the scars for they are the evidence of the unfathomable love that the Father and the Son have for us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love for us that's so full, so intense, Father, for your plan of salvation that we might know your love. Be in your presence forever, Lord, in your economy that came only by the wounds and the scars of Christ. And so we celebrate them because before our eyes now. And Lord Jesus, when we see you face to face one day, there will be the scars. And there will be the reminder, should we have any reason to doubt, of your great love for us. And so we celebrate those scars now in Jesus' name. Amen.